Pray with me. Father in heaven, now as we come to your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to embrace. Father, most assuredly, I would pray that you would enable us to come sincerely to you. Thus, we confess our sins before you. We turn away from all that which we might desire other than you. And Father, we pray that you would put within us hearts that are undivided, but hearts and hearts that desire to know you, to follow you, to please you, to glorify you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Ezekiel in chapter 20. Ezekiel in chapter 20. I want to read the first 32 verses. Ezekiel 20, verses 1 through 32. Hear the word of God. The seventh year, the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. The me there is obviously Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name that I should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sights I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which, if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which, if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness." And I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourself with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules, and keep my Sabbaths holy, that, you may, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me, and they did not walk in my statutes, and were not careful to obey my rules, by which, if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. 
Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries, because they had not obeyed my rules but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths. Their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. And I defiled them in their very gifts and their offering up all their firstborn, that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, And this also your fathers blasphemed me by dealing treacherously with me. For when I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then whenever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree there, they offered their sacrifice, and then they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, What is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. And therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer up your children in fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What is this? What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. I want to draw your attention to verse 3. Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel, say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. That to me is a devastating statement. Because here we have a situation where the elders, the leaders of the people of Israel, who are in exile, come to Ezekiel the prophet to inquire of the Lord, and he says, no. He says, I will not be inquired of by you. Now that does not mean that they had made a request of him, and God says, no, I won't grant that request. It means that they came to God to inquire of him. We don't know inquire what, whether it was how long they were going to be in exile or whether the destruction of Jerusalem was imminent or what. But they came to inquire of God, to seek him. And he said, I won't be sought by you. I won't be inquired of by you. You cannot come. You cannot come to me. Now, it was reasonable that they would go to Ezekiel because he was the prophet of God. God gave gifts to his people most especially in the Old Covenant by way of these prophets who came. And we think often, perhaps most often, that the role of the prophet is to tell the future, which it really wasn't the role of the prophet to tell the future primarily. Prophets found themselves telling the future quite often only because it fit with their more general calling. Their more general calling was to speak forth the truth of God. Now sometimes in the midst of that, they found themselves telling people what was going to happen. But primarily they were spokesmen for God. And often, as Ezekiel, they brought these words of judgment because you remember God made a covenant with Israel and in his covenant there were stipulations, that is, commandments. And there were blessings if those commandments were obeyed and curses if those commandments were not obeyed. 
And so very often God would send a prophet to his people when they were disobeying. And the word of the prophet would be word of judgment saying, you've disobeyed, the curses of the covenants are now coming upon you. So the prophets got the reputation really of being the covenant prosecutors, that they would come and bring this case, God's case, against the people. And thus they would find themselves very often saying, and because you've disobeyed, this is what's going to happen. And therefore we'd see, in the word of the prophet, this foretelling of the future. But again, the role of the prophet was to speak forth, to tell the very will of God to his people. And thus, when people would want to know the will of God, they would come to a prophet to seek the will of God. And so they did that. And you see, the great danger for the Israelites was first that they would have false prophets among them. Because a false prophet would speak on behalf of God, presumably, but wouldn't be speaking the truth, and they would follow it and be doomed. Another great danger of the people is that they would not listen to a true prophet of God. That someone would come and speak the word of God and they would not follow it. But in this situation, we have a group of people seeking God from a true prophet, and God says, I will not be inquired of by you. When I read that, I have to ask the question of myself. Could that be possible? Could it be possible in the context of my own life, or in your lives, that you, that we, that I would inquire of God, and he would say, no, I won't be inquired of by you. Again, this subject today isn't how to find the will of God. That's not the point. It isn't that God says that they were trying to find his will and, and, and we're going to try to find the process by which one finds the will of God. The subject today is not to have your prayers answered. How is it that God will answer your prayers? This is more basic than that, more foundational than that. This is how to be received into the presence of God. How is it that God would even entertain you? Not by song and dance, but by bringing you in to his very presence, to receive you at all. Now, this is not a modern question, that is to say. This is not a question that most Americans struggle with. Because it's the presumption of most in our culture that God will accept anyone coming to him under any circumstance, for any means, in any way at all. And that as long as you desire to come into the presence of God in your mind, then he will receive you and he will be inquired of by you. But Ezekiel says, here's a group of elders in Israel, leaders of the people, who come to the prophet to inquire of God, and he says, no, I will not be inquired of by you. Do you understand the solemnity of that? Now why? Why is it that God would not allow himself to be inquired of uh, by them? And the answer is one word answer, and that is simply idolatry. Os Guinness, who's a writer, British writer, sort of British writer, has a funny accent, um, lives in America now, though, said this. He said, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the whole Bible from beginning to end. Now, when we think of idolatry, it sounds rather primitive to us. It's sometimes difficult for us to relate to that concept of idolatry because we think of little statues and we think of people bowing down to little statues and all those kinds of things. And it's certainly in those day, 
those days was that, of having these little statues. But it wasn't that they were worshipping the statues, but there was something beyond that. The assumption was, the notion was, that if in some way you could create an image of a god, then you could capture in that image the essence of that god. And if somehow then you could keep that image with you, carry it around your pocket, then you would have the presence of that God with you all the time and have influence, really, over him. What influence? Well, because, you see, behind this idolatry, these particular gods, was really the sense of the individual person being God in their own lives, saying, this is who I desire to be. Let me find a God who will let me be that. This is how I want to live my life. Let me find a God who will let me live my life that way. This is how uh, I desire, these are the things that I desire to follow in the course of my life. Let me find a God who will allow me to do that. And therefore, the Israelites sitting around looked at the Egyptians and said, they're very powerful. They have tremendous prosperity. They are tremendously secure in the context of their own nation. To whom do they give glory for their prosperity, for their power, for their security, and all of that? And being able to live life and fulfill these various desires. And so they would then take the gods of Egypt and say, okay, we'll consult with them. We'll make images of them. We'll keep those gods with us. And then they looked at the Babylonians and said, the Babylonians are really hot. Because the Babylonians control us. The Babylonians are so powerful, they've conquered us. The Babylonians are so prosperous. The Babylonians are so secure. The Babylonians seem to be able to live life as they desire to live it. And so, to whom do they give glory? Well, let's find their gods and let's make images of those and capture the emphasis of them. And let's put those gods in our pockets. Let's keep those gods with us. And perhaps then we'll get what we really want, which is security and prosperity and success and power, prestige, and being able to live life as we define it. Because you see, essentially, that's what... That's what God is and does as the very one who defines our existence. The one who defines your existence, the one who tells you who you are, is God to you. And for many, that's ourselves. We say, this is who I want to be. This is who I am. This is my identity. The one who directs the course of your life is God to you. That's what God is to do. The one who lays out the plan for your life, the, the one who you follow, that's God to you. The one in whom you delight is God to you. That is what really makes you happy, what fulfills the desires of your soul. Because you see, if anything comes against or anyone comes between who we want to be, who we can be, we sacrifice that, even if it's God himself. And so God comes to the people of Israel and says, it's a problem of, of idolatry. You have all these particular gods. In fact, he puts it a little more bluntly in Ezekiel chapter 14, if you'll turn there quickly. Ezekiel chapter 14. I skipped this chapter when I was working through Ezekiel. I, I, I thought I'd already covered this material and then I found it again in Ezekiel 20, and I thought, maybe I wasn't supposed to skip it. So that's why today. 
fact, I was going to skip all of chapters 20 through 32, 33, because I wanted to get to the good part, but then I found four Advent sermons in all these chapters, so that's where we'll be. Notice Ezekiel 14, verse 1. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me, that is to Ezekiel, and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their eyes. I'm sorry, before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Same issue. God's saying, listen, the elders have come. Should I let myself be inquired of by them? Should I let them, myself be consulted of them? Should I, by them? Should I, should I have them come and, and, and ask of me and, and I respond to them? Or should I not? He said, but they've taken their idols into their very hearts. It's not me they want, God says. They have these things that they want, success, prosperity, whatever that may happen to be. They have these things that they want, fulfillment of their own desires. They don't want me. They just want to use me. They want to put me in their pocket like all the other little gods that they have. They want to line me up alongside all of these others, you see, so that they can press all the right buttons and get then the right combinations of what they want from and fulfill their very desires. And God says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm God. I don't line up with anyone else. I'm the Lord. That's what he says to them. He says, therefore, unless you come to me desiring me, desiring to follow me, desiring me to define your life and to tell you who you are, because I created you, desiring me to direct your life, and desiring me to be the very delight of your life. In fact, the way he puts it back in Ezekiel 20 and verse 11, he says, I gave them my statutes and made known to them, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version that puts it very bluntly. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which a person, if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. God says, I've give them, given them my Sabbaths, my rests, because you see the Sabbath and our observance of God's Sabbath defines who we are. When everybody would look at the Israelites, they'd go, whoop, they're off again today. How'd that happen? Why did they get another day off? They just had one six days ago. Why did they get another day off? Oh, I know. They're the people who trust Jehovah. They're the people who trust in God. They're the people who think that God will meet all of their needs. And so they take this one day off and celebrate him and celebrate him as being their provision. That was to be their identity as people who trust in God and God alone and no one else. And then he said, I've given them my rules, my directions, my commandments, my wisdom to follow. That was to, do, to direct them in all of their ways. And it was to direct them in such a way that they'd be pleased with God and delight in Him. And God says, if you're not going to come to me, to me, then don't come. If you're going to come with other gods in your pocket, don't come. Because I will not be inquired of by you. I don't exist. So that I will fulfill in you all your evil desires. You exist to reflect me, to be my glory. Uh, the scripture is replete with this kind of a message. For instance, turn, if you've got a Bible there and are interested in turning, to Deuteronomy in chapter 4. 
Deuteronomy in chapter 4. Can I do this? This is all right. I'm just getting a little warm. When I throw my coat, I always see if I'm Benny Hinn, and I'm not. Okay. Um, Deuteronomy 4, verse 29. I'm happy about that, by the way. Um, I trust you are as well. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. This is the passage where God is speaking to the people directly about idolatry. Don't have any other gods in your pocket. And he says, if you do, because the goal of God in the life of his people is to convince them, to teach them that he is the Lord. And so he says, then I'll discipline you. And then in verse 29, he says, but from there, you will seek the Lord your God and will find him. That is, you will be allowed to inquire of him. You will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. That is, if these idols are in your heart, and God is not in your heart, that your heart's desire isn't to follow Him, then you won't find Him. But if it is your heart's desire to find Him, then you will. Turn to Second Chronicles in chapter 33. First, Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, chapter 33. I'm going slow and deliberately through this. I'll take you through a number of passages, but... It's helpful, I think. And it's helpful to see them if you've got a Bible to look at them so that you see they're really there and your minds can visualize them on the page. It's helpful, I think. Second Chronicles 33 and verse 10. This is a passage about Manasseh, the king Manasseh. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they didn't pay attention. Manasseh was a horrible king. In fact, as you read through the scripture, you'll find very often just this little phrase called the sins of Manasseh. The sins of Manasseh, because he was horrible. And it was sort of a byword in Israel. If you mention Manasseh, you go, ugh. All right? But notice, verse 11. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the, uh, the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him into Babylon. And when he was in distress... He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh, the worst of all the kings perhaps, in this one moment in time came to know that the Lord was God. And he did that in the midst of distress because in the midst of his distress he looked in his pocket and he realized that none of the gods that he carried there had helped. That none of them could help him at all. And as the, the prodigal son reached a point in his own life when he realized that all the things that he had desired and wanted he realized were bogus. And he sat there with the pigs and he realized his father was back and he repented and he went back. In the same sense, we get this sense with Manasseh saying, none of these other gods have helped. That's all wrong. I've been wrong. In his distress, he calls to God and God alone. And then notice what he does in verse 14. Afterward, it says he built an altar wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley, uh, in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army 
and all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. See, what Manasseh had put an idol right in the temple. That's how bad he was. But yet when God delivered him and he realized that the Lord was God, he took that out. Meaning, when he went to the Lord, it was as if he was saying, okay, I give up, you're right, I'm wrong, you're God. And it wasn't so much a bargain to say, God, if you get me out of this, I'll take all the idols away. It, wasn't, it didn't need to be a bargain. It was just logical. It was what's in his heart when he went. As if to say, these idols are already gone. I just can't get to them to move them out. Because he knew that he had no other hope other than in God himself. Turn to Psalm chapter 27. Psalm number 27. And verse 7. Psalmist writes, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. So again, he's crying to the Lord. And the question, of course, is will God be inquired of by the psalmist? And we read this psalm, we realize he was. So how, verse 8, you have said that as God said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. That is your face and your face alone. Karen has an expression for me. And I would have an expression to her, but I'm the guy, and so she thought of it. But when she wants my attention, she says, I need your face. Now, she trusts that there's something going on inside my face <laughs> that's going to be with her too. But I need your face. That is, stop looking at the paper, stop looking at the game, stop. I need your face. And God says, if you're going to seek me, I need your face. You need my face. We need to be face to face. And the way that I express that is that I want your heart, your whole heart, if you're going to seek me and find me. Psalm 66. Psalm 66. And verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth. Now again, the question would be, well, you cried to him, but, 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 but did he allow you to inquire of him? That's really the question. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. He did listen, therefore the psalmist is saying, I didn't cherish iniquity in my heart. And you say, but there's always iniquity in my heart. That's true. But the point here is he said, I didn't cherish this iniquity. Meaning it wasn't my idol. It wasn't the thing I really loved. Because if we go to God cherishing something other than him, will he be inquired of us? Will he allow us to inquire of him? And the answer is we need to confess that and repent of that. So that we cherish him and him alone. Notice Psalm 102. In verse 16. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer. That is, he hears and receives this one who prays. He regards the prayer of the destitute 
and does not despise their prayer. Now, does that mean destitute uh, materially, physically, or does that mean destitute spiritually? Well, really, it doesn't matter. Because by destitute, it means you have no other hope. Nothing else has worked. You realize at this moment in time that you're utterly in need of God and God alone. That's what that means. And so when we come to him, he says, I want you to empty your pockets and come to me. Psalm 145. In verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him. That is, he will be inquired of all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. That is, we know who he is. We're not calling to some God that we don't know. We're not making assumptions about this God that aren't true. He says, you must come to me as I am, not as you want me to be, not as you thought me up to be, but as I really, really, really am. Isaiah, chapter 58. I'm going to linger here just a minute because there's something terribly significant for us to see. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Now, if that's all you had, you'd go, wow, they're great. That's it. That's it. To seek God, to know his righteousness and all of that. But we'll see God is speaking a bit tongue-in-cheek. Verse 3 is their response to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They're saying, we're fasting, we're seeking you, but it doesn't seem like you're allowing us to inquire of you. God then turns to speak. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You see, it isn't the outwardness of our seeking that God sees. It's the inwardness of our seeking that God sees. He says, I really know what's going on. You're fasting perfectly. This means you're not eating. (laughs) But I know what's going on in the context of your own heart. You're really seeking your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. And that is, In other words, you're just fasting to show yourself better than everybody else and start quarrels with everybody else on how great you are. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? See, we think we can put God in our pocket like all the other idols. And if we fast and go through all these motions, then we've got what we want. He says, no, 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 no. I'm not like that. It's such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes uh, under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And of course the answer is no, that's, that's not really what God is after. So what's he after? Verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? 
Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. You see, he's saying, Listen, you just want to spend me on your own pleasures. You don't want really me to define you or to direct you. If you did, you would take all that food that you're not eating right now, and you would give it to your brothers and sisters in Israel who are starving. You'd stop walking over these who are part of your own family. He says, that would show me your heart, that you want me, and not just for your own pleasures. In verse 11, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, who, water whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall rise up, uh, raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Verse 13, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure, talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He said, listen, if you will define yourselves by me, that you will trust in me and me alone and find your delight in me so that you can enjoy my rest and be known as one who trusts in me and me alone, then... You can inquire of me because you're inquiring of me, of the Lord. Finally, Zechariah chapter 7. Just one verse 13. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. I've already called, God says. You didn't listen to me. Why am I going to listen to you when you call to me? The New Testament as well, just a couple of passages, all of which I'm sure you're familiar. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. And without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That is, God says, you've got to trust me, you've got to believe in me, and then I will hear you. James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the winds. He said, you've got to trust me. You've got to believe in me. Chapter 4, James, in verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He says, I'm not going to be used by you. You come to me, you need to want me. You come to me, you need to let everything else behind. And so, and this will be the last verse for the moment. Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 7. The solution to their issue of not being ones God will allow to consult with him. Well, verse 6. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent, Turn away from your idols. Turn away your faces from all your abominations. That is, empty your pockets. All your idols, come to me. Repent. Come to me. Trust none others. Now, what's the punchline to all of this? 
Well, the first Sunday of Advent. If I could just be corny for a minute. It's the first Sunday of Advent. We celebrate prophets and their announcements of Jesus. Why? Because he is the prophet. You want to inquire of God, how do you come? How do you come to God knowing that he'll receive you? You come to the prophet. For Jesus was the, the prophet. We call him the Christ or the Messiah. Messiah in the Old Testament means Christ in the New Testament, Hebrew to Greek. And it simply means the anointed one. And everyone knows anointed ones are prophets and priests and kings. And Jesus, the anointed one, was prophet, which means he would come and reveal the very will of God. You want to inquire of God, come to Jesus and him alone. John speaks of Jesus by saying he's the word, the very self-expression of God. Jesus even said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. So the words I speak are the very words of God. God himself announced on a particular day, this is my son, listen to him. You see, not only does Jesus speak the truth, but he is the truth. I've shared this before. But one of the most astounding, profound passages to me, which means relatively nothing, but to me in the New Testament is the passage in John where Jesus is facing Pilate and Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what is truth? And Jesus says no words. That always disappointed me. Because I was waiting for a really, really good definition of truth to give to my philosophy professor. Thinking, ah, here it is. Nothing. But there was something. Because Jesus then went out and was truth. He was truth on the cross. The very truth of God. The very reliable truth of God. And he said, this is, this is what you need to know. You want to inquire of God? This is what you need to know. First this, that God is holy. God is holy. And he won't be mocked. And he's holy. And therefore, if you sin against him, which we all do, then we deserve his wrath, his death, his condemnation. But then this truth that God loves to realize he did. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. That is, to see their own sin and say, that's wrong. And that makes me terribly, terribly sad. And then, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. That is, when you come to, to God, repent of your sin and come with the expectation and the hope that he will fill you with his righteousness. Because that's really what you're after. That's really your heart's desire. He said, oh, that's wrong. Oh, that's wrong. I need his righteousness. And so we come to him. The way Jesus put it, as he was preaching and teaching, Matthew has it like this in Matthew chapter 11. In verse 28, Jesus simply says, come to me. That is, inquire of me. Here are the people who can inquire of God. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Oh, you're weary and burdened. All of you said, you know, I can't. Can't be good enough. Can't please him. I can't. He says, and I'll give you rest. The people, the elders, in the days of Ezekiel would have come to God saying, listen, Ezekiel, we want to inquire of God. And we're coming like this. We're coming saying, we've been wrong. We've been sinfully wrong. We haven't followed him. We have all these little idols in our pocket. 
But now we're pitching them. Every last one of them. We're pitching every last one of them. Not only do we know they don't work, we're not only pragmatists, but we realize, Ezekiel, that we've been wrong in trying to follow these and it's been dishonoring to God. And so we're coming to Him and Him alone. We lay ourselves before Him and we're saying, okay, define us. Tell us who we're to be. And we'll be it by your grace and help. Direct us. Tell us what we're to do, what we're to think. And by your grace and power, we'll think that and we'll be that and we'll do that. And we know that that'll be our delight. God would have said, you can inquire of me all day long. I would like you to join me, therefore, in this prayer during our Advent season. It's in Psalm 86. In verse 11. In this version it reads, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Uh, That is, I want to inquire of you. I want to know your truth. And then this, Unite my heart to fear your name. I believe in the NIV it says, Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. means the same. Give me an undivided heart that is a united heart. What does that mean? It means a, part, a heart that's not this and that. A heart that doesn't think, well, I want what you want, God, but I also want this. And I know you don't want that, but I still want both. The psalmist says, listen, if I'm going to inquire of you, God, here's, here's what I know must be true. Give me an undivided heart. Unite my heart to be one, to seek after you and you alone. Define my life, God. Direct it so that I might delight in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, I I shudder to think that I or any one of us would approach you and you say, I won't be inquired of you. Thus I thank you for our Lord Jesus, the very one who is the truth, reveals the truth, brings the truth in us. I thank you that he had perfect motives. I thank you that he had perfect desires to follow you. And he did it. And so, Father, when we say we come in Jesus' name, that's not some piece of magic. That's some magic formula that we use. But, Father, we know it's only right and real if it reflects our innermost being. So, Father, we come in Jesus' name, humbling ourselves before you, confessing our sin, and asking that you would cause us to have undivided hearts, unite our hearts. So that, Father, all we desire for ourselves is what you desire for us. All that we want for ourselves is what you want for us. All that we want want to be is what you want for us to be. All that we want to delight in is that which brings you joy.
So, Father, I pray that that would be true of us. Enable us to cast every idol from our pockets and trust in you and you alone. For, Father, we come in the name of Jesus, trusting in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, <clears throat> I remind you that elders are available to pray after this service, so please take advantage of that. I remind you, too, that the response to our benediction is the one that we use each Advent season, which is simply this, Christ has come, Christ is coming again, hallelujah. Now, when you say Christ has come, it's a, it's a profession that the very, the very prophet of God has come, taken our sins, died and risen, sends to intercede. When you say Christ is coming again, you're saying he's coming again. And that's the very hope that we have. And when you say hallelujah, you're saying, I really like that. <laughs> Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To our only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.